0: Philippians 3, verses 1 through 7. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Christ. Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based, on the law, faultless, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ,
1: well, good morning again, it's good to see all your smiling faces and some of your not smiling faces, but you you know how to fix that, so we're okay. If you remember, it's been two weeks, but we were uh, before Easter, we were in the last part of chapter two of Philippians. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn there. Um if you, if you remember, that last chunk of chapter 2 talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus. I'm sure you remember their portraits. I put them one more time up here for you. Companions of Paul, well known to the Philippians, if not Philippians themselves. Now even, even though this section there is kind of a personal reporting, it might almost seem out of place, but we looked at the possibility that Paul was not just reporting but presenting these men as examples of some of the principles we've been seeing in his teaching as we go through the book here. Perhaps Paul wants to point to Tim and Epaph, or however they shorten their names, as manifesting, as embodying some of these godly traits, these men of course being known characters to the Philippians. So with this in mind, we last time, two weeks ago, we talked about influence, the influence not only of Epaph and Tim, but your influence and the influences that you are under. Who is influencing you? And the second question, who are you influencing? So as we think about the principles of righteousness coming out of Philippians and elsewhere, it's worth pondering those two questions, I think making changes even in our lives concerning the influence. I want to do just a little bit of review as we come back to Philippians this morning. Um, If you remember, toward the beginning of the year, we looked at some background and contextual information about Philippians. I just want to review a little bit of that, reminding us where we're at as we study this book. Philippians was a letter written by Paul, the apostle, to the church in Philippi. He wrote this letter mostly, most likely around 60 A.D. while he was in prison, probably imprisoned in Rome. As we remember from the story in Acts, we saw that in chapter 16 of Acts, Paul went to Philippi on one of his evangelistic journeys and the church got started here about 10 years prior to the writing of the letter, around 50 AD. Now you remember the scene, perhaps, Paul and company um, started out by talking to some women down by the river, and some of these were the first converts to Christianity in the region. And also here we remember that Paul and Silas were put in jail for disturbance. God miraculously released them through a nighttime earthquake. And following that, the jailer and his family put their faith in Christ and joined the infant church. So this was the planting, if you will, of the church there in Philippi. Now, Philippi itself was a prominent Roman city, mostly populated with Roman citizens in the region of Macedonia. You can see it there toward the top. um, Jerusalem down here would be capital of Israel down on the lower right side. As Paul and company came to Philippi, the gospel reached Europe for the first time. Um, As I said, it's the the land that Macedonia would be north and west of Israel. Now all of this region is modern day Greece. Perhaps some of you can visit the ancient site of Philippi one day. Maybe I'll go with you if you do now so now as we come to the letter the church is about 10 years old as i said it doesn't seem to be as troubled as some of the churches that paul wrote to some some as corinthians and such received some letters from paul that had some significant issues that he addressed but we do notice that there's points of christian living that these philippians need correcting in. they need guidance from paul Among other things, we've seen Paul rejoicing with them, encouraging them in their walk of faith. Paul shares of his prayers for them and reveals his deep love and his relational connection to them. They're his family. It's become obvious that they have a sweet bond in Christ, really a bond only Christians can share. Now, this letter doesn't have our name on it, does it? We're removed in culture, in time, in language. We're removed in place. But the principles of Christianity span time, place, and culture. We believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the words of this letter as Paul inscribed them. That's why they're in our Bible. That's why they're called Scripture. And God preserved them as authoritative for us and the rest of history. Now it's our job, our pleasure really, to work out what those principles of godly, or I should say scriptural principles, the Christian principles that do span time and place, what are those? That's our job um, as we look at the script, scriptures so that we can know God and we can seek Him properly and further. As we come to Philippians, we do find similarities with them and us, don't we? We are a local church, we're made up of individuals saved by God's good grace And like them, we're learning and practicing and working out what it means to be saved. Remember that he challenges them, work out your salvation by fear and trembling. What does that look like as we relate to others, to each other in relationship? Well, many of the the things we see here, the principles, the teachings, we take fairly directly for our life in Christ. As the congregation, the church in Philippi would have as well. We talked a little bit about an outline, I think I'm going to kind of skip over that this morning, maybe we'll uh, remind each other of that at a further date, but let's pray as we come to the next section in Philippians. God, thank you that you're here with us. I'm thankful that you preserved this work that Paul wrote in prison for the local congregation many years ago, but really not that long ago. And as humans, we find ourselves in similar situations, similar struggles, similar joys, similar questions with similar answers. And thank you that we can find you in these pages. And I pray that even this section this morning would make sense to us as we study it and attempt to apply it. Thank you that you are here. Holy Spirit, we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. So hopefully hopefully now you're looking at chapter three. Let's just do a little Bible study as we look at the first part of chapter three that was that Steve read. And Ellen's right on track. She must have been studying this boasting of Paul. that's where we're at today. So she started things out just right for us. Um, as you scan the first couple of verses there, you notice that in verse one, Paul seems to be drawing some conclusions and heading toward final thoughts. Do you see that? But then in verse 2, instead of concluding and giving final thoughts, it seems that he launches into new material. Now there's various explanations as to why this might be, even to the suggestion that Paul did not author this section, basically all of chapter 3, but it may have been added by a redactor or an editor later. Without going into that anymore, we're just going to go with the idea that of consistency, that is, Paul wrote this letter in its entirety in full. But as you look at three one, it may even be possible to assume that the author truly was considering wrapping it up, even in the in the first phrase, and then he decides against it as he remembers, or maybe he receives new material. He remembers to warn to warn them and protect them with this argument now against false doctrine. And I think we're thankful that he did that, right? It brings some doctrinal clarity to Christianity, both for the Philippians and for us and for for many in between and many going forward, perhaps. So back to verse one, look at that. He urges them as his brothers and sisters to rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. Now, have we heard that before? Yeah, it seems that that might be even a theme of Paul in this letter. Um, It's both in his life as well as a challenge to the Philippians. Now, the concept of joy has come up multiple times in the epistle already. We see that he prays for them in joy. That's in chapter 1, verse 4. He desires to remain with them for their joy. That's in chapter 1, verse 25. In chapter 2, he calls them to make his joy complete as they seek unity, as they seek that same mind with each other. He tells them to welcome Epaphroditus home with joy. And then in four one, he calls this church, the Philippians, his joy and crown. So we've seen this joy come up. And I think the joy that Paul is speaking of here is precipitated by a choice to rejoice. You like that? I should... Put that on the title of something. A choice to rejoice. Well, Paul talks about this choice to rejoice even in the trials and hardships he was living in, doesn't he? He he was under stress, under a lot of unknowns were in his life, difficulties. But we see him say rejoice twice in chapter one, once in chapter two, once in chapter, and once in chapter four. He says, I will rejoice. He then calls them. And shall we say us to rejoice twice in chapter two, once in chapter three, this one we're looking at now and twice more in chapter four. Obviously, this is a necessary element to living in love with one another and finding contentment in our God given spot, choosing to rejoice and as a necessary element. See this in your in verse one there. It's a safeguard for them. It's a safeguard for them. That is, in their life in the Lord, rejoicing, choosing joy is a basis of stability for these believers. Probably something we ought to ponder a little more. As we make a choice to rejoice, we'll find stability, firmness in our lives in Christ, no matter what we face, the circumstances that we might face. So we'll come back to that concept of rejoicing as we get to chapter 4 a little bit, I think, but... Remember to rejoice. As we come to the the second verse, we see that abrupt switch that I mentioned in content. Now I don't know that this is the case, but hey, what if that abrupt switch was to make some people sit up in their seats and say, "What? Wait, did I just did I go to sleep and then wake up again somewhere later?" I mean, this is this could be a literary style with intentionality that's designed to get the reader to listen or to pay attention. I don't know for sure if that's the case, but here then is what has been called the polemic or the attack, the argument, and that's what we're about to launch into. Paul doesn't exactly say who is confusing the church on these matters that he is is attacking, he's arguing, but we can assume that there were false teachers influencing the church, teachers possibly even from within Christianity. Now, these teachers were promoting practices from Judaism alongside of belief in Jesus Christ as Messiah. So did you catch that? Practices from Judaism that need to be combined with faith in the Messiah to reach eternal life. Now, we see these false teachers come up multiple times in the Bible, particularly Galatians and Corinthians. They're spoken of even more Directly and more obviously, this group is often referred to as Judaizers. And again, the ideologies, the problems that Paul is seeing and strongly addressing have to do with the teachings that Christians should accept certain Jewish rites and practices alongside of belief in order to be saved. As an example, and, and we see this now circumcision was necessary to truly find salvation and life in Christ. Somehow we can assume that the Judaizers have gotten to these Philippians and are influencing them. Paul has some strong words against them. So next you can see there that he launches into defining these Judaizers by telling them to look or watch out for them and their message of falsity. He first calls them dogs. Now, we might understand this term to be pretty derogatory, even a sort of curse, you know, a worthless fool or something like this. But Paul's probably not saying this so much as he's putting an interesting twist to the relationship between the believers and the unbelievers, particularly those antagonistic religious Jews. Now, catch this. In Judaism... When someone was referred to as a dog, it meant they were outside. They were a Gentile. See, so you're inside. If you're a dog, you're outside. You're a Gentile. Now, Paul seems to be using the term to define those outside, not Judaism, but the truth of the gospel. Not so much a name calling, personal offense session as it is defining the truth of the gospel versus the heresy of the Jewish rites and practices that are, should be combined with the gospel, as these Judaizers are saying. Secondly, he goes on to call them evil workers, probably in reference to their work or practices of the law that they relied on for salvation. These were evil. They were wrong. They were heresy. Now the last one in verse 3 there, those who mutilate the flesh... Among other rituals they were promoting and practicing, circumcision was being carried out with the conviction that it was a necessary part, it was an effective part in bringing one into into God's family. Now, if that's the mentality about circumcision, it's nothing but mutilation, is what he says. In fact, it's akin to pagan practices. It's lost any kind of good significance... Paul doesn't want these believers, these Philippians, to be sucked into this way of thinking. Rites, rituals, doing, practicing certain things will not bring you into the family of God, into God's people. In fact, these things are damaging to the theology of the gospel, to good theology. Now in verse 3, you continue to see this twist of definitions turning the pride of the Judaizers on its head as he says, in essence, in fact, Christians are the ones who belong to God. We're the people of God. And he says, actually, the circumcision, if you will. The gospel of Christ's love, his death, his resurrection is where truth lies. Now, the designation of the circumcision historically referred to the Jewish people under the law of Moses Circumcision being the sign of the law, that you belong to the Jewish people under the law of Moses. So it's really a direct jab, I think, in his argument as he turns this whole thing on its head for these these Judaizers. Paul wants to communicate clearly that those who want to find God and his truth must do so through Jesus, not through works. Works of the law, especially. Now there are two more designations of the saved person. Um, The ones with truth, you see in verse 3, first, true worship that that aligns with God and is pleasing to Him and is is by and perhaps through the Holy Spirit. In other words, Pentecost, remember that? The coming of the Spirit in power as God reveals His program on earth, it's not to be denied. That was a real thing Paul's trying to communicate, I think. God's truth centers around the Holy Spirit, relationship with Him, and not on sacrifice so much or rituals or works of the flesh. And then the the second, the last one there, he says, we boast in Christ as opposed to putting confidence in the flesh. Christ gets the glory, the praise. He has done the work of saving us, not something we perform in the flesh such as that sign of circumcision. Paul is not, I should say, Paul is not excluding Jews from salvation in any way here. He's just pointing out that the signs of the law of Moses are not what gets you into God's family. Now, speaking of boasting, this is Paul, you might say it's a mock boast. It might come across a little strange at first reading, but this is a mock boast. In verse 4, Paul launches really into a segment of his testimony as part of his argument. Remember, he's making an argument here against putting confidence in the works of the flesh. And to prove his point that he just made in verse 3 about boasting in Christ instead of works. Now, did the Judaizers, as they came to the Philippians or the Galatians or whoever they came to, did they appeal to their achievements? and they're standing as they try to persuade the Philippians of this practice, of what they should do. Well, Paul says, if they think they have grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 4 there. Paul says he's got the born right, he's got the experience, he's got the degrees, he's got history in Judaism. If anyone has the ability to claim merit based upon the deeds of the flesh, and that's the key, to claim confidence in their own good works, Paul says, I do, I've got it. In fact, Paul claims that he comes out ahead of any other in his achievements. If this were a competition, he is sure to win. And I like this phrase that I stole from someone else. His sincerity and intensity were unmatched. And then he goes on to explain that. But before we get to that, I think the the reason, again, to reiterate that he spends the time to enumerate all of his achievements here is to point out that they are ultimately worthless when it comes to Christ, when it comes to eternal life, when it comes to being accepted by God. All the qualifications in the world will not buy you a place in the gospel of God. And in a few verses, we'll get into it next week, verse 7 and on, He'll go into more detail about that. Well, here are seven qualifications then. You see them in verse 5 and 6 that he reveals about himself. And it really is a pretty impressive list. Now, it may not be that impressive to us since we are outside of that context of Judaism. But if we were a Pharisee of the day, this would be an impressive list. The first four... Um, speak to Jewish privileges that Paul had acquired basically by his family, by his birth. The first one, he was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the proper time to circumcise a baby boy under the law of Moses. Secondly, he was truly an Israelite. That is, he was pure-blooded. He was not a proselyte. He he wasn't a convert, which was sometimes considered a second-rate Israelite. Three... As further definition, definition, he was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, clearly pointing to one of the 12 tribes. Definitely not obscure in this claim to being an Israelite. Which leads to to number four, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Probably in this he was trying to communicate that his family was committed 100% to Judaism. They hadn't deviated from the practices or the language as some around them had. So this expression of his birth and family situation is truly unbeatable by any other claim. Now the last three qualifications have to do with choices Paul made in regard to the law of Moses, the system of belief in Judaism. Basically what he had accomplished. First, first he claims to be a Pharisee. The highest position really in regard to the law. The name pharisee meant separated ones and i think in this, in the sense that they were very strict about the observance of the written and oral laws of the jews that separated them even from most religious jews they were seen as learned and disciplined religious leaders and really considered to be the group most faithful to the hebrew scriptures the pharisees promoted and were committed to their law Now, his zeal in regard to the law and religious commitments was unsurpassed as well, and you see that in the second one, even to the point of persecuting the church. Now, you remember perhaps some of the intensity of Paul's persecution. To begin with, he was present and condoned the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, Acts chapter 8 or something right around there. He followed this by pursuing Christians with a vengeance, dragging them out of their homes and imprisoning them. To this point, in Galatians 1.13, Paul says, I used to persecute, the intent, persecute intensely the church of God and tried to destroy it. That was his goal. Now for Paul, at this point, it was a point of shame. But it's proof to zeal unmatched in Judaism in his past. Finally, the third one there, the last of of all seven, Paul claims to have a perfect record in regard to righteousness of the law. So by his own interpretation of his life in accordance with the law and the oral traditions as well, he claimed to have an impeccable record. Not only did he know the law and all its ins and outs, he had developed life habits in accordance with the law in every respect. Again, not something he was technically boasting in now, but if there were an opportunity to gain God's approval by legalism, Paul was in the lead spot. So kind of in summary, in review of of what we've been looking at, Paul's telling the Philippians quite strongly, by the way, to watch out, be aware of this heresy of the Judaizers. They want you to think that it's necessary for you to to take on, to participate in the practices and methods of Jewish law in order to be saved. But, he says to them, your confidence comes through the finished work of Christ in his death and his resurrection. He says if there was anyone who could have gained right standing with God through the works and the rights of the flesh, I was there. It was me. And then he tells them those, those things we just looked at. And after giving the details of his achievements, pointing out that he was unsurpassed, he says in verse 7, it was all a loss. We're going to save that until next week, but that's important to point out. It was all a loss in the light of Christ. Now, confidence in the flesh, it's related to the works of of the law, and of Judaism in our context here, isn't it? But the elements are universal to human pride. We can easily place confidence in things of our flesh. Now that's anything that we rely on, anything that we boast in, that we take comfort in, or find confidence in, things that are of ourself. Maybe it's our social standing, Or other places of honor and privilege we find ourselves in. Or it's our accomplishments. What might that look like? From various earthly achievements to moral standing. Probably most of the time we're tempted to take pride in things that are not inherently bad. But that have no value without humility before the Lord. In fact, they can turn into an obstacle of stumbling without looking to him, without giving him credit and boasting in him. So then the question, what are you boasting in? Or where is your confidence? I want to tell you a little story about boasting. I hope I won't bore some of you. If you don't like airplanes, then you can go to sleep for a minute. But um, I'm not sure if this story is true and I... For the record, I have edited, edited it some in order to fit it in here, but the, uh, this is the SR-71 Blackbird. The fastest, it was the fastest plane in the world aside from rocket planes. Here's a story that's given to us by the pilot of an SR-71. He says, There were a lot of things we couldn't do in an SR-71, but we were the fastest guys on the block and loved reminding our fellow aviators of this fact. People often asked us if, because of this, it was fun to fly the jet. Well, fun would not be the first word I would use to describe flying this plane. Intense, maybe. But there was one day in our training experience when we would have to say that it was pure fun to be the fastest guys out there, at least for a moment. It occurred when Walt and I were flying our final training flight. We needed 100 hours in the jet to complete our training and attain mission-ready status. Somewhere over Colorado, we had passed the century mark. We had made the turn in Arizona, and the jet was performing flawlessly. Ripping across the barren deserts, 80,000 feet below us, I could already see the coast of California from the Arizona border. I was beginning to feel a bit sorry for Walter in the back seat. There he was, with no really good view of the incredible sights before us, tasked with monitoring four different radios, I pulled the radio toggle switch and monitored the frequencies alongside with them. The predominant radio chatter was from Los Angeles Center, far below us, controlling daily traffic in their sector. While they had us on their scope, albeit briefly, we were in uncontrolled airspace and normally would not talk to them unless we needed to descend into their airspace. What we listened is a shaky voice of a lone Cessna pilot ask the center for readout of his ground speed center replied november charlie 175 i'm showing you 90 knots on the ground that's about 104 miles per hour now the thing to understand about center controllers was that whether they were t- talking to a rookie pilot in a cessna or to air force one they always spoke in the same exact calm deep professional tone that made everyone feel important over the years that tone of voice had become somewhat of a comforting sound to pilots everywhere. Just moments after the Cessna's inquiry, a twin beach piped up on the frequency in a rather superior tone asking for his ground speed. I have you at 125 knots on the ground. That'd be 144 miles per hour. Boy, I thought the beachcraft really must think he's dazzling the Cessna brethren down there. Then out of the blue a Navy F-18 pilot came up on the frequency. Center Dusty 52 ground speed check. Before center could reply, I'm thinking to myself, hey, Dusty 52, ground, 52 has a ground speed indicator in that million-dollar cockpit, so why is he asking center for a readout? Then I got it. Old Dusty here is making sure that everyone from Mount Whitney to the Mojave knows that what true speed is he's the fastest dude in the valley today and he just wants everyone to know how much fun he's having in his new hornet and the reply always that same calm voice with more distinct alliteration than emotion dusty 52 Center we have you at 620 on the ground 713 miles per hour and I thought to myself is this a ripe situation or what As my hand instinctively reached for the mic button, I had to remind myself that Walt was in in control of the radios. Still, I thought, it must be done. In mere seconds, we'll be out of the sector and the opportunity will be lost. I knew that to jump in on the radios now would destroy the integrity of the teamwork we had so long been developing. I was torn. Then I heard it, the click of the mic button from the back seat. That was the very moment that I knew Walter and I had become a crew. Very professionally and with no emotion, Walter spoke. Los Angeles Center, Aspen 20, can you give us a ground speed check? There was no hesitation, and the reply came as if it was an everyday request. Aspen 20, I show you at 1,842 knots across the ground. That's 2,120 miles per hour. <laughs> At that speed, by the way, you could make it from the East Coast to the West Coast in 64 minutes. I think it was the 42 knots that I liked the best. So accurate and proud was Center to deliver that information without hesitation. And you just knew he was smiling. We never heard another transmission on that frequency all the way to the coast. <laughs> For just one day, it truly was fun being the fastest guys out there. Now, I don't know about you, but I would guess most of us, if we were sitting in the Blackbird, we'd have done the same thing, click that mic button, to boast in our speed, right? Now, on the other hand, I guess you, have the, you could have the perspective that no matter how fast you travel through airspace, both the, black, <clears throat> both the Blackbird and the Little Cessna are susceptible to similar things. For example, if either one of them runs out of fuel, you know what happens. It's a crash and burn situation. But in any case, we ought to watch what we boast in. What our confidence is in. Where our security lies. What are some things that you are tempted to? or that you have or are putting confidence in when it comes to your Christianity. I'd like to take just a minute, reflect on that list that Paul gives there, and share a few things that come to your mind with your neighbor. Maybe it's something you recognize as a temptation, a theoretical that we should guard against. Perhaps it's something you recognize that you have, or even are, struggling with as far as boasting what it is that we can boast in, that we can put confidence in that we should not be. So take just a minute, turn to your neighbor and share a few things that come to your mind. that could go on and and should go on and it's a it's a question to think about and take take home to your families maybe or to your small groups what are we placing our confidence in and it's okay to recognize i think that we tend to place confidence in the wrong things by nature and that so we we work on that and as i thought about that i wonder if the, the thing that stings us as christians that stings us the most is our moral achievements or maybe it's the lack of moral achievements taking pride putting confidence in the things that we have done or something that we're we're being pretty good in particularly something spiritually good something moral for example maybe you've conquered your tongue and as far as you can tell you never say anything slanderous about others. You have always, always have a perfect guard on your mouth, on, on the words you speak. You always think before you speak. Well, if that happens to be true, and I'm sure some of you have conquered that, on the one hand, wouldn't that be great? Right? It's an, it's an honor to God. It's loving to people. It's helpful for you as a person. But here's the point. On the other hand, it could be a point of pride. I could take credit for that basically i'm boasting in my speed it's all the wrong thing it's the it's an accomplishment of the flesh on the other hand perhaps perhaps you're lacking confidence in achievements you haven't done very much you're not something special etc well the same principle applies we don't rely upon the deeds and the accomplishments of the flesh but upon god Boasting in Him alone, trusting in Him, putting our confidence in Him. So what are you boasting in? Where where is your confidence placed? Remember that attitude of Jesus out of chapter 2, where He emptied Himself, He humbled Himself, I think that's the attitude that leads us to boasting in Christ and His goodness to us. Now, there's a lot to explore here and I think probably in the next couple of sessions in Philippians we'll explore it a little bit more. But again, this is something we need to take home and think about as far as our confidence and our security. What are we boasting in? Take it to your life, to the challenges that you face. Instead of boasting in the valueless speed of your jet, make this your goal. And check out the the words of God in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. It says, The wise person, person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. So again, what are you boasting in? Where is your confidence? Is it your position, your standing? Is it your accomplishments, your achievements? Is it something else? Or are you boasting in the Lord? Are you thankful to Him for adopting you into His family? Now check your heart. Only you can truly see. There's a lot of ways to boast. But this is who we are. And I I want just as we finish, look at verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. For we are the ones who boast in the Lord and don't put confidence in the flesh. This is really our definition of boasting, in and for and because of Jesus. Steve, would you come up? Let's pray together. God, we come to you. We know we have a tendency to boast, even if it's not out loud, even if it's not to anybody in particular, to take com- to be confident, take security in something that's Of the flesh something that fades quickly something that's susceptible something that's even maybe not reality I just ask that we would by your power get a glimpse of what it means to seek humility that we can see truly what we should be boasting in and why and that's Jesus the finished work on the cross and the resurrection We need your help with this. Thank you for your mercy that guides us through this process. And thank you for the challenging words of Paul. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.